Uh, let's pray quick. Father, we come before you. We lift this time up to you, and we put the word into your hands, and we ask you to teach us. Uh, let it find a home in our hearts. Whatever's from you and whatever's not, let it go its own way. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we, lift, we left off on Matthew 5, uh, the, the tail end of the Beatitudes, and... Uh, Verse 18 is where we were, and it's Jesus talking about the law. And it's important, once again, just as a quick recap, that Jesus, um, in his first real public sermon, goes right to the... Go ahead. What's that? Did you record? Yeah. Okay. Ah, you missed it, huh? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm going to look at it to make sure I did before I become a smart butt. <laughs> yes, I did. Why is nothing happening? Oh, it is. Okay. You confused me. It was easy, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> we left off with verse 18 for truth. And, and once again, realize the importance of Jesus gives his first message. The, the Savior of the world shows up. Hosanna. The thing that Isaiah prophesied. And the first thing he teaches about is he tells us. Oh, Ben's coming in. Hey, Benny. Uh, the first thing he tells us about is the importance of the law. So if he's saying it's important, then we'll spend a little time on it. And if you were here two weeks ago, it's what I preached on. And the, one of the reasons I preached on it was because of what we talked about here. And hopefully I summarized it pretty good. But what he basically said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. I love that word accomplished. It tells us there's meaning and purpose not just to the law, but to all of this. Uh, it, it All this was intended to go somewhere. It is going somewhere, and it will go somewhere, and it will be accomplished. What God wanted out of this world will happen. He will get what he wanted. He's God. Of course he will. Uh, and the law shall stand. And it will stand until then, uh, because we have a way of uh, negating the law with grace. Uh, the law leads to grace. It doesn't negate it. And just one more time for clarity. I read it last time, and I read it in church, but I'll read it one more time just so everybody gets it, because Scripture blatantly tells us why the law is there. You we don't have to sit and... Uh, study the Greek and the Hebrew and go into commentaries it just plain says it Romans three nineteen through 21 we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law which is everybody uh, until you come to Christ so that so that why are we all under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God so that you know you're accountable to God because by the works of the law, this is important, no flesh will be justified. You cannot live good enough to save yourself. It's impossible. It says right here, no flesh will be justified by the law. In his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. One more time. You want to know what the law does? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law turns your face to the mirror and makes you stare. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it tells us, the law tells us we're hopeless. And then verse 21 says, now apart from the law, not through the law, 
we can find the righteousness of God. Well, of course, that's through Jesus Christ. He's the cure. Uh, we left off on Isaiah 51.6, which says, Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. Okay. It's, if you live forever, the earth isn't. Um, it's all going to go away. Heaven and earth, they're all gone. And I believe we have science that tells us that. Um, you know, the sun's going to swell up, engulf the earth, and then, uh, what does it say? Uh, I forget who it was. It says the world doesn't end in a bang, it ends in a whimper. Uh, well, what they're saying is that's how the universe is going to end. It just fades away into nothingness. Well, that's <coughs> the last I heard. Um, not that we need that, but it's just interesting to note that, uh, but it says here, the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. Uh, so why are we putting all of our cards into uh, that hand, the hand of temporal life, putting all of our money in on that hand? But my salvation, and here's the but. God's telling you how, the, man, <laughs> you could spend a lot of time investing in the things of this world, but they're all going away. It's going to mean nothing one day. But my salvation will be forever. Who I saved is saved forever and my righteousness will not wane uh, everything we see is temporary it exists to fulfill God's purpose until all is accomplished but the things that matter salvation and righteousness because I want both I want salvation and I want righteousness I don't just want salvation and end up being me forever it's not what I'm looking for it's not what I desire I want to be like Christ. They're eternal. They never change, and they never lessen. Verse 19. Whoever then annuls the least... And this one's important. Um, now, when we read this, we think of our foes and the current theological arguments that maybe our denomination is having. And I use that word foes not in a harsh way. Uh, people who believe things other than we do. Uh, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in his first teaching, Jesus Christ tells us, uh, brings up an important part about us teaching uh, it's not just keeping, it's teaching. Uh, explaining why you do what you do. And we need to know that. To be able to teach it, you need to know it. And once again, I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here in Bible study. But you do realize how many Christians who love the Lord just have no depth whatsoever of the Word. They, Because if they read the Word, if they hear the Word, it'll challenge the things they don't want to let go of. Some of that also covered, what was it, in Second Peter or in Jude, one of the recent yeah. books? About, yeah, well, yeah, this is the precursor to both First and Second Peter and Jude. Uh, this is Christ kicking that ball, getting that ball rolling down the road about those teaching about the commandments that you don't have to do them, that a time has come where 
you know, there's a theological reason why, you know, it was back how they did it back then. You have to keep it in historical context. And Jesus is saying, no, the law is the law. And anyone who tells you any different, they have problems with me, is what he's saying. And he uses the word for for keeping the law. And this is coming from uh, the, the one who is going to save us through faith. This is his teaching on the law. I mean, so it's really important. He calls them great in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says someone is great, they're great. I mean, there there is nowhere else to go to measure. So if you want to be someone, if you want to be all that you can be, if you want to drink every little nugget and morsel out of this life that you can, keep and teach the law. Live righteously. Uh... All theology aside, and after all social and political theory considered, and the reason we do this, once again, I'll just say it, uh, we always want to use Scripture for our purposes instead of Scripture using us for God's purpose, you know, it coming in and changing us. And it is always a mistake. It is always a compromise. And every time you start compromising, that is a slippery slope. You cannot come back up. Um... And we, we, we bend it to our politics. We blend it to our social theories. Not just one side, all sides. Success in the kingdom of heaven comes down to keeping and teaching the law. We call that righteousness. Keeping and teaching the law is righteousness. Now, he's going to go into some more detail about that in a little bit, about what he actually means by keeping the law. I mean, it's... It, he gets into depth here. Uh, coming up, he will be talking very shortly about exactly what he means, that it's more than just following that letter. It's following the heart of the law. The law is God's. It is not ours. We have no power or authority to challenge it or to change any of it. We can complain and question all we want, but in the end, we answer to it, either through Christ's sacrifices, sacrifice or our own righteousness. Those are the only ways we can answer to the law through what Christ did or through what we did. That's it. They're the only two options in life. And we'll see that in verse 20. We are given the option, and only one of those options will obtain righteousness for us. We should not separate this verse from the one that follows, from verse 20, as it gives us insight into the thrust of Jesus' point, that we keep the law we teach to do both of the things, you have to know it. You can't keep it, and you can't teach it if you don't know it. And once again, you're the choir, you're here. Um, now, I want to give you a quick rundown for those of you who weren't in church, just to help you out a little bit about understanding when he says law, what he means, what about what passes away, what doesn't, because you need to know this. Uh, I'll do it much briefer than I did it on Sunday. There are three types of law in Scripture, ceremonial, civil, and moral. The first two are fulfilled, one through the coming of Christ, and the other when Israel stopped being a nation. Uh, the civil law was for Israel and Israel alone. Uh, it's not something that we could apply to ours, though we have tried throughout our history, and it has always been a mistake. Uh, and the ceremonial law, its whole purpose was to foreshadow Christ. 
Uh, the moral law, however, applies to everyone everywhere from the beginning of time until all is accomplished. The moral law is here. This is why we do not celebrate the Sabbath as Israel did. This is why we don't stone people who commit adultery. Consider this uh, regarding the civil and ceremonial law from Colossians 2, 13 through 17. Because when we read stuff like this, it confuses us a bit about the law. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh before you were Christians, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way and having knelt it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one, and this is the important part, this is speaking to the civil and to the ceremonial law and to the rabbinical law or any laws that your denomination happen to make up. Rules, we'll call them rules. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, the moral law stands, and it will stand until all is accomplished. Not one letter of it will pass away. But nothing listed here is moral law. It is ceremonial or civil. And part of the civil law was to was what Israel how Israel was to respond to breaks of the moral law. See the moral law said this was wrong. The civil law said what to do about it as a nation. We no longer follow that, nor should we. It doesn't matter if you recognize it or not, this book that God wrote will judge the book of your life. It is just that simple. And it's uh, uh, verse 20. Uh, that uh, Hopefully that gives you some idea of the complexity of when he uses, says the word law. It's not just a simple word. There's meaning behind it, and we need to know that. Verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So... How righteous do you have to be to get into the kingdom of heaven? You, you just can't be. Acting religious is not righteousness. And it's not enough to gain entrance in the kingdom of heaven. Now please note, this is important, that Jesus is plainly saying that the religious leaders were not, the scribes and the Pharisees were not in the kingdom of heaven. That is what he's directly implying. Let me read it again and see, you know. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, in other words, unless you have more than they have, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it implies directly that they are not in the kingdom of heaven because they don't have enough righteousness to do it. Jesus then explains what he means so there is no misunderstanding. Sin is a matter of heart and mind. The action is simply proof of the sin. This is really important because what we do is we judge our lives and we judge every other person by what they did. God judges you by your heart. And he knows your heart. The act is the symptom. The heart and mind are where the disease is. There is no way to excuse the act. But the absence of the act doesn't mean there is no cancer. How many times have you heard people saying, I never knew I had cancer. It just showed up. I felt fine. And then, bang, within a week or ten days, they're dead. 
It's much like that with us. He isn't saying to declare the act of sin as natural and acceptable. He's saying to accept it as proof of what is in the heart. Um, you know, there is no excuse for it. it. What it is, is it's proof of what's already there. However, the absence of the act does not mean the cancer is not there. Pride is so strong, it strives to hide the proof from the eyes of men and from our own eyes. But the eyes of God sees all the cancer that's in us. In the following verses, Jesus uses the phrase, but I say, and that's the phrase, those three words, but I say, six times. As he gives us six examples of what he means by righteousness, true righteousness. Not the righteousness of the Pharisees, not the righteousness that we pretend that we have, that we try to show other people, what God sees. Now, the next eight verses, Jesus uses anger and harming others to clarify his point about true righteousness and the law. So we are about to get some real insightful teaching on the law that God said won't go away, that you know every letter and every dot will stand. But what he's actually looking at is much deeper than anything the Pharisees ever taught. Verse 21. Let's see where we're at. We should be looking pretty good. Yeah, we're good. Jesus says to them, You have heard that the ancients were told. Now, he starts all of this with the, the law. <coughs> when the ancients were told, he, he's talking about law. Uh, every one of these things, he starts with a law. And he says, You shall not commit murder. Now, we know that's a law. It's in the Ten Commandments. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Uh, what the ancients were told is the law of God. Jesus is not saying it can be discarded. He's saying it must be understood and obeyed, both the letter and the heart. The letter must be known, knowledge, and the heart must be understood, wisdom. Uh, 21 through 21, 21 through 26 address, addresses our anger, which is one of the real... Uh, flags that waves about sin in us. Anger is one of those things that uh, should cause you to look in the mirror. Both who is both who's at us and those we are angry at. What God expects. Okay, here's the first one. You have heard it said, what, the, what scripture says. He said, but I say. <laughs> now he's not saying, and none of these things does he ever say that it's wrong or that it doesn't count, or it doesn't matter anymore. Not in one of these. What he's saying is, there's more. I expect more than just the letter of the law. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. By court, he means God. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, in other words, sees no value in someone or tells someone they have no value, you shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Uh-oh. Uh uh, have you ever done it? Have you ever waved with one finger and called someone a derogatory word that begins with A-S-S? -S? <laughs> or any of those things. Uh, Jesus isn't kidding. Guilty enough 
to go into fiery hell. This is God saying, I don't like it. God don't like ugly at all. At all. And he just, he, he doesn't permit it. And this is Jesus saying, okay, you want to take this commandment far. This is the depth of it. If you don't value others as God values them, good for nothing, then you're guilty before the highest court. The court, the thing about the highest court is it can't be overruled. Uh, there's nothing, there's no appeal. There's nothing you can do. The punishment for such a thing is hell, and there will be nowhere to appeal. Uh, we blow this off as the human condition. We see it as a casual thing. We treat it as incidental because that's just how we are. But this is how God sees it. Uh, this sort of thing, when not dealt with, led Cain to kill Abel. What did Jesus? What did God say to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. Why is your continents fallen? Why are you angry? That, that beautiful question. Why are you angry? And man, there's a theology behind that question. You could preach on that question. When he says to Cain, why are you angry? Man, we could spread that out through our lives. Anger is eternal. Saying you fool is external. It proves the anger that's inside of you. It proves that you're willing to just dismiss human beings just because you don't like it. They're both just as wrong. Verse 23, he continues on on this thing. Uh, still in the same mode about being angry. He's, remember, this starts with, you should not commit murder. <laughs> so then he tells us what you should do about it. Okay, if you find yourself saying you fool, or if you find yourself being an angry person who's condemning other people left and right, who's dismissing human beings, their value, the value that God had put on them, that you have decided you are divine enough to remove, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've done this, and, and man, it, it scares me. Uh, therefore, so Jesus is saying, if you've done this, you know, if this is you, here's what you do. If you're presenting your offering to an to, at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So if you come to church, and to do the things you do in church, to be churchy, and uh, you realize, I, I've done something I shouldn't have done. I, I hurt somebody. Um, they have a reason to be angry with me. And so this is turning around a bit. Now, you might be causing them to sin with anger because of something you did. Do not be at peace at church, prayer, worship, or giving your offering if you did harm to another by word or deed and have not addressed it. Give God really what he really wants from you obedience to the law of love take care of the heart of the law first god really doesn't care what you put in the plate he doesn't need your money what he wants from you is this we cannot make god accept what we want to give him we have to accept what he wants and give it to him note that in the next verse it says after you've taken care of the heart come back and make the sacrifice <laughs> in other words Yes, keep going. That doesn't mean stop going to church. It means do it right and then go to church. Um, the heart and the letter of the law both need to be taken care of. Proverbs 21.3 uh, 
to do righteousness and justice is the desire of the Lord more than sacrifice. First uh, Samuel fifteen twenty two. Samuel said, "Has the Lord as much delight in the burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of rams." So anyway, Jesus goes on and says, "Here's what you do." You're, you you come to church and you realize that you've really wronged someone and they're angry with you. It says, leave your offering before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. So take care of the heart of the law and then come back and do the letter of the law. Don't try to make peace with God if you refuse to make peace with men as God instructed you to do. How could you be at peace with God while not being obedient to him? As far as possible with you is the standard. And we will see that. Verse 25. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. See, this has both a practical and a spiritual application. Yes, there's a very practical idea behind this. Uh, don't be so dug on bullheaded uh, that you know, you're going to hurt yourself. Just cut off your nose to spite your face, basically. Go and apologize, man. Uh, but also the deeper spiritual thing about who the judge is and who the officers are. Don't lose sight of the spiritual inference here. We have a responsibility to correct the wrongs we have done to do what we can to repent to those we have harmed. This is one of the steps of AA. If you guys are familiar with AA at all, this is woven into their practice. And it basically says this, made a list of all persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends to all. You see, AA being a based on spiritual principles, it's this one. Yeah, well, I thought it was eight. Yeah, okay. Well, in Celebrate Recovery. Okay, yeah, but it's in almost all of them. You have to make reparations, or you, you have to do what you can do to make reparations for what you've done. Uh, the fact that God has forgiven you does not alleviate you from doing the right thing and being humble before somebody else who you wronged. Uh, do what you can to fix what you've broken. God will fix what you can't fix. That you've broken but you have to do what you can that responsibility is there this act of humility is a witness to the grace of god if you owe it do what you can to pay it that's all i can tell you and by you doing it it is a witness of grace saying to those you've offended that god forgives me um, and that you don't matter i don't have to ask you for forgiveness is not a good witness. That what you think of me doesn't matter. Um, all you can do is ask. You can repent. You see, repenting is not just something we do before God. It's something we do to people we've wronged. Uh, that applies to everyone. Uh, I was wrong. I'm sorry I was wrong. I will try not to be wrong again. Um, if you've been married for any length of time, you will understand that. Jesus goes on same point in verse 25 truly i say to you you will not come out of there until you have paid up every last cent uh, that's an ominous warning and i like to think of it and i may be wrong but i like to think of it this way god says 
I really want you to take care of these things. I want you to do this. <coughs> if you don't do it, I'm going to remember you didn't do it. Even if the other person you offended forgot, I won't. Uh, it is sin to be angry and do harm, and it is sin to do things to others that make them angry with you. God holds everyone accountable, and the one who did harm, and the one who returns the harm. Both ways. See, there's teaching here about what to do when you harm others, and there's teaching coming up about what to do when others harm you. And it is totally different than what the world teaches. And if you will remember about the entire Beatitudes is, this is a treatise on Christianity, and it has nothing to do with the world. Justice will be served. The law will be answered to. Hence, take care of it now while you can. Repent and hold on to Christ and do the right thing. Verse 27. Jesus changes direction. He comes up with a new topic. You have heard it said. When he says that, he's talking about scripture. You shall not commit adultery. These next, these next six verses, Jesus uses human lust and passion to make his point about the heart and the letter of the law. See, in each one of these things where he says, you have heard it said, but I say, what he's doing is he's telling you that he's showing you the difference between the letter of the law and the heart of the law and what he expects. But I say, there it is again, to you that everyone who looks at a woman and sisters, this turns around both ways, uh, with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, wow, that is right to the point. And that, you know, there's a lot of proud people walking around saying, I never committed adultery. And Jesus said, oh, really, I know exactly what you've done in your heart. <laughs> so I see it. I know it's there. And you're pounding your chest in pride for no reason whatsoever. Uh, if you will remember, we ridiculed one of our presidents for admitting this. If you're old enough to remember Jimmy Carter and saying this, you know, that I, hey, he admitted it. I, I've lusted after women in my heart. And we all made fun of him. Well, Jimmy Carter cleared up things with God. Uh, lust. Now, we have to understand what that word means. This gets a bit complicated um, because each one of us might have a different idea and definition of what Christ is saying here. Uh, the Greek word, uh, oh boy, E-P-I-T-H-U-M-I-A, epithumia. It means to fix desire upon. It's something you do. You fix desire upon something. Uh, Webster's, uh, usually intense or unbridled sexual desire. But it's not always about sexual desire. You could lust for gold. You could lust for anything. But the key word there is unbridled, unchecked, let loose, uh, letting it run wild. What Jesus is saying is the sin was committed long before the physical act or even without the physical act. What he's saying is you're accountable. You're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to stand in front of me and explain it to me. Um, there's a big difference between attraction. Let know this, brothers and sisters. There's a big difference between attraction and lust. Attraction occurs naturally. Attraction isn't sin. If there was an attraction, 
none of us would be here. At least not the way we got here. A lot of mothers would be denying paternity. <laughs> I'm still taken by that. A mother denied paternity. Yeah. Uh, it's what you do with attraction. Or what you allow it to do to you that matters. Sin is in our hearts before it's anywhere else is what Jesus is saying. Our idea of it's okay to look at the menu as long as you don't order is bull. Jesus is saying that right off the bat. If you're looking at that menu and you're just uh, lusting after the things on that menu, it's just like you ordered. Uh, and I'll just give you a, an idea of how this it goes from attraction to lust. Second Samuel eleven two three, and this is the classic. And I think if Kevin remembers, I've preached on this once about what we do on the roof of our house when we go up to the roof. We go up to sin. Uh, and when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And what do we call that? Attraction. He looks over. And he sees a beautiful woman bathing. There isn't any of us that would look over and say, that's not a beautiful woman. You can't deny it. She's a beautiful woman. And she's bathing. It's what you do then that matters. You know, there is such a thing as looking away, going away, thinking about something else. You know, uh, grandma brushing her teeth, uh, the Mets third's basement, you know, whatever you want. But making the effort. So what did David do? And it says she was beautiful in appearance and she was taking a bath. From that, David does this. He sent and inquired about the woman. Even that. Okay. I, I need to know who that is. And how many of us have, you know, I'm married. I, when I first saw my wife, I want to know who she was. I, I remember looking at her at Bible study the first time I saw her and saying, Step behind me, Satan, you're blocking the view. And uh, nothing was wrong with any of that. But David sent and inquired about the woman. Here's what he inquires. Is that woman married? <laughs> you know, do I have a chance here? Is this something I should pursue? Or I can pursue? Because I'd like to. And that's not wrong. And one said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That's where this needs to stop. Nothing wrong with being attracted to her or inquiring about her. Boom, 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 boom. Once David is told she is the wife of another, he needs to stop and take control of his own heart and his own mind because he will be held responsible for it. Of course, he does more than, you know, lust in his heart. We all know how that one goes. But fortunately, we'll wrap up. Uh, dee, 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 dee. Yeah, we'll wrap up with these two. New Testament scripture gives us an absolute breakdown of how this all occurs. We don't have to sit and ponder uh, how this all happens to us or where it comes from. James 1, 14 through 16, every Christian should know these two verses or at least have an understanding of them. If you can't quote them word for word, it doesn't matter. You need to understand what they're saying. But each one, that's me and all of you, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Not his attraction, but his lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
Once lust is there, you're sinning. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. Anytime scripture says to you, do not be deceived, it says it because it's something that's easy to be deceived about or something we want to deceive ourselves about. And what he's saying is you can't. This all rests on you. Is Satan mentioned anywhere in there? No. It's us. Attraction is not temptation. Temptation is a result of our lust, not the devil's evil. Note that Satan is not mentioned here. He simply uses our lust. He does not create it. We are responsible for our sin, not him. Lust, sin, death. In that order, do not be deceived. Job 31.1 uh, You want to know what righteousness is? You want to know how to handle these things? When Job makes a defense of his life in chapter 31, everything he says is true. No one disputes a word of it. Not even God. What God is saying is it's not enough. But this is the truth. And remember, the book of Job starts with God saying, that is the most righteous man on the planet. So, I have made a covenant with my eye, my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? How could I then gaze at a virgin? I've made it a principle. I told myself I will not do that. So how could I look at someone in lust? I won't allow it. And I have not, and I did not. And he puts it in writing for everyone to see, and no one challenges it. Not one person says, don't you remember the time you did this or said that or, you know, and we will close there. Uh, any questions, comments, or criticisms? Anything? We will pick up on verse 29, which is a very interesting, the if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out part. And uh, we'll try to get some sound theology on that one, okay? Um, let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Uh, let it minister to us, Lord. Uh, let us open our hearts and minds to it. And when it, we do, and it comes in, let it change us so that we can be no longer a problem, but part of the cure in this world. Watch over my brothers and sisters. Make them strong, wise, brave, and compassionate. Help them to glorify your name and what they think, what they do, and what they say. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Oh.